Before I start, I want to read for you a quote from Spurgeon. Joel Teague gave this to me this week, and it was just so nice. I'm going to read it for you, and it does apply to our lesson today. And this is from Spurgeon's uh, book called Lectures to My Students, and it's from his lecture one entitled The Minister's Self-Watch, but it's applicable to all of us. So let me just go ahead and read that and before we start. He says, uh, we are, in a certain sense, our own tools, and therefore must keep ourselves in order. If I want to preach the gospel, I can only use my own voice. Therefore, I must train my vocal powers. I can only think with my own brains and feel with my own heart, and therefore I must educate my intellectual and emotional faculties. I can only weep and agonize for souls in my own renewed nature. Therefore, I must watchfully maintain the tenderness which was in Christ Jesus. It will be in vain for me to stock my library or organize societies or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. My own spirit, soul, and body are my earnest My nearest machinery for sacred service, my spiritual faculties, and my inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. I mean, that is so good, right? Spurgeon writes so well, but the point here really is this culture of myself. And that is really, in the end, all we can affect, right? I can't change your culture. I can't change your heart. I can't change anything. So it's a culture of ourself that is paramount and the most important. So we'll come back to that at the end of our lesson today and remind ourselves about that fact. Okay, uh, Bible knowledge question for you. And for those who paid attention in the last couple months, I've mentioned this before, so it should be easy for you. I know you listen to everything I say. Um, Well, actually two parts, a real softball first. Which gospel has no parables? Which gospel book has no parables in it? John, right. Very good. Which chapter in the Gospels has the most parables? Ah, very good. 13 of what book? Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 13. has. It's a very dense collection of parables, and there's eight parables in Matthew chapter 13. I just mentioned that because we will be talking again about today's parable and reviewing what a parable is intended to do. And so, very good. Matthew chapter 13, if you want to read a real dense collection of parables, that's where you go. Last week, just by way of review too, I threw out this question, which New Testament chapters speak the most about our Christian liberty? And, and you guys, it is, there's two chapters you can go to if you want to learn about our liberty as Christians, what we really can do as Christians, we're, we're, we're free to do and we're able to do. And it's uh, Romans 14. It's a good chapter for that. And then 1 Corinthians 9. Last week, we were all bouncing around. We couldn't remember which chapter in 1 Corinthians, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Okay. If you're in Mark chapter 7, I just want to review for us what we did last week. And Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23 are really one unit. We got through about half of it last week through verse 13. And we'll pick up today at verse 14, but just by way of review, you remember that the setting here is um, Jesus has a very active ministry. Recently, he had fed the 5,000 in Bethsaida dramatically, fed 5,000 people just from a little couple loaves and a few fish. And they all marveled at that. He needed a rest. So he had sent the apostles off. He said, you guys, move on to the other side of the sea. He stayed there up on the mountain himself and prayed. And we talked about how one of the reasons he probably did that was because the apostles, no doubt, were getting caught up in this image of him being the king, the political ruler. And a lot of the Jews were thinking that, and the apostles were too. So one reason he did that was to sort of Get them away from that scene. You guys go away. He stayed there, and he dismissed the crowd up on the mountain praying for his disciples. And then he looked out over the sea. Remember, it said he saw them struggling at the oars. They're probably just going in circles in this really fierce storm. And he saw them out there, and he 
He walks out on the sea, and he says, take courage, don't worry, it's me. I, I, don't worry, I've got it covered. And what did they do? They thought he was a ghost. They're scared out of their minds in this um, storm. So, nevertheless, he says, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And if you read Matthew's account, I'll just read these few verses. It's in Matthew 14. The fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, You of little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, when he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. So, dramatic scene. He walks across the sea. He helps Peter back into the boat. And they worship him. You are God. You're God's son. They know it. Mark's gospel says something a little different about that or adds to it I should say because in Mark chapter 6:52 it says after this scene it says for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves but their heart was hardened remember we talked about this so even the apostles they've witnessed so many miracles they've actually performed their own miracles they were sent out in pairs to cast out demons and heal and seeing Jesus's miracles and even after all that they're still able to have hardened hearts And this is a prelude to what we're going to read today. So just remember that. The apostles can still have hearts that are hardened. Okay, so they they go back across the sea. They get blown off course a little bit. They end up near the plains of Gennesaret, sort of the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus heals a lot of people there for a while. And then the Pharisees show up from Jerusalem. They're sent to investigate what's going on with Jesus because at this point in his ministry, it's a, it's a huge ministry. Many, many people are following him. He is healing people. He's teaching with authority, and he's really a threat to the Jews. They have to come investigate. And in particular, the Jews, the leaders, don't like a few things about Jesus. One is he doesn't really follow their traditions and their laws. He doesn't wash his hands like they do. He touches the, the unclean people, the Gentiles. He associates with tax collectors and the sinners, and they really don't like that. And last week where we read, we saw they really didn't like that he was not ceremonially washing his hands like their traditions said you had to do before you eat every single meal. And the reason they were The reason Jesus criticized them so much for that, and he called them, you hypocrites, was because of why? What was the main thing that he didn't like about their criticism of his disciples and their hand-washing? About the out? Yeah, they're like, they were whitewashed tombs, right? He says in another text, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. They didn't appreciate the triviality of washing hands compared to the work of God on earth and what he was doing. Why else did he criticize them in particular? If you look at that verse in chapter 7, he, he says, um, I'll read it for you. He says, um, in verses 6 and 7 of Mark 7, he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So the other reason is they were teaching their traditions as if it was God's word, and it wasn't. It was their traditions, their oral traditions, which they had accumulated really since the time of Moses. They'd accumulated the oral traditions and had kept mushrooming bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more jot and tittle, and that's what they would follow versus the word of God, and that's why he criticized them. No, you, you follow your own ideas versus the word of God. Um, by the way, here's another interesting fact. Hypocrites means... The Greek, hippo means under, hupo, under. And then the second half of that word, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's krites or krits. It's a mask. So it means under mask. And that word was actually used by the Greeks at that time who were stage actors. So they were acting a certain way, but it wasn't themselves. They They were the stage actors. They were the hypocrites. So it really adds flavor to what Jesus means by that. You are, you're not yourself. You're acting a certain way, but 
it's not really you. You have a mask on. You're under a mask. And those actors at that time would carry these masks around. And they had equipment and stuff to hide themselves from who they're acting like. So really, another word might be actor, stage actor, fraud, or deceiver, phony, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what, that's what hypocrites really meant when Jesus used it. Another interesting fact, in the New Testament, that word is used 18 times. All of them are Jesus. Jesus is the only person in the, in the Gospels or in the whole New Testament that uses that word hypocrite. Uh, just a fact. It's interesting. I never realized that, but uh, he is the only one that uses that word. So the hypocrites do things to be seen by men, not really thinking about what God sees. So they do things, and if you look at Jesus' use of hypocrite throughout the New Testament, you know, they tithe to be seen by men, they pray in the synagogues, out in the open, so men can hear their, their big, high, lofty prayers. They give to the poor so people can see them giving to the poor. They have this ritual hand-washing so people can see them. They, Jesus tells them, remove the plank from your eye before you look at the speck in someone else's, you hypocrites. So the theme, really, of a hypocrite is uh, largely they're doing things so other people can see it, avoiding the truth of what God sees. And then they're called whitewashed tombs. So the Pharisees here are particularly hypocritical because they're pretending to teach God's truth, but they're not. They're teaching their traditions. They're not teaching the truth of God. They're really just teaching the tradition of man. And the traditions they had developed, not only, they, they revoked God's law, basically. That was the other hard teaching Jesus told them in the first part of this chapter. What your tradition you're holding to is actually revoking the law. Remember we talked about Korban, where the, uh, the Ten Commandments says, honor your mother and father. They said, and they had this little rule, well, I can't do that because I've committed it to God. They, they called it Korban. They said, we, we Korbaned it. You know, we, we said it's God. That's literally the way they did it. They said, nope, it's like tag your it. It's like a word they would use. That's committed to God. This money is God's, this little plot of land. I can't use it to help my, my old parents. And Jesus said, well, that is actually violating and undermining completely. It's revoking God's law because the intent of that commandment is to honor your parents. You know, honoring someone means committing to them, loving them, etc. So the problem with their traditions was that they invalidated and revoked God's word. And Jesus removes any idea that you might have that um, maybe some of the people who held to the traditions really were motivated to do God's will. They were maybe motivated to, um, with good intent, be true to what God's word was teaching. That is one conclusion you could come to. It's like, well, we just want to protect it, and just to be sure, we're going to add these other laws onto it, but really what we're trying to do here is protect God's word. Well, that would be a somewhat of an interesting conclusion you could come to, and a rational person might think that out. I might think that, but... The word tells us that, no, they were hypocrites. What they were really doing was elevating themselves and lording over other people their own ideas. Unless we get too hard on the Pharisees. It's also nice to step back and say, well, what, the Pharisees are just human beings, right? They're just people, just like us. It's like, and so I often say the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the Jews, but it's like, wait a minute their mind, the way it thinks, and the way it wants to like, have these extra little laws and these jot and tittles and these things that they are to commit to, they're aside from God's word, that's what we will do. We'll always do that. So be aware of that fact. When you look at the Pharisees, uh, we shouldn't be too self-righteous and think, well, they were extra bad people back then. No, they're just like us. And then one last point from last week. The, uh, so... They were revoking God's word that is to be condemned. The second thing is they had God right in front of them, right? And he was right there in their midst. The God of the universe who made everything in the flesh was right there in front of them. And so they were claiming to be pious and godly, the leaders of the people, and yet plotting to destroy God. So that's another fact that you can't help but recognize. Okay. Any other teaching from last week that I missed or you remember or comments on? 
Okay, so if you want to, please just flip to Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 14 to 23. And before I read it, you just, you'll notice immediately it says, after he called the crowd to him. So this transitions from the teaching in the first section was mainly to the Pharisees. Now he's turning to the crowd to teach them something um, for all of them to hear. This is important. The crowd needs to hear it. Okay, so let me just read verse, starting at verse 14. It says, After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And by the way, I mentioned this last week, verse 16 is absent in some of your Bibles. Verse 16 is not found in the earliest manuscripts of Mark's Gospel. The New American Standards has it in brackets, but some of your Bibles go right from verse 15 to 17. Does, what version do you have? So, yeah, so the reason they did that is because you have hundreds of years of verses that are referenced. And so they just, in their wisdom, said, you know, we'll just keep the numbers the same instead of sort of re-numbering the entire rest of the chapter. Yeah. So, uh, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what 16 says. Excuse me, yes. So 16 says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not in the earliest manuscripts, but that is a refrain that Jesus often used when he was teaching parables. So it's just not in the earliest manuscripts. Verse 17, for everybody, verse 17. (laughs) When he left the crowd and entered the house, so here, he's teaching the crowds, now he's in a house with the disciples. His disciples questioned him, questioned him about the parable, the one-verse parable, by the way. Uh, and he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So, he wants everyone to hear this teaching. He speaks to the crowds, right? This is important. Listen to what I'm going to say. He's basically saying, this teaching I have for you about purity is beyond what these Pharisees are saying. This is for you to hear, and it's for you apostles to hear in particular because he's in the house with them at the end teaching them this important truth. So this is for everybody. Um, When he says there's nothing outside which can defile him if it goes into him, but things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. That's the whole extent of the parable, one verse. Matthew says it this way, It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. So one confusion, just to be blunt, is when you read that, what goes in isn't what defiles, but what comes out. Okay, so there may have been a thought of, you know, the latrine issue. That may have been some superficial way that they they understood it. Matthew's account tells... uh, brings a lot more clarity to it because he says what comes out of the heart is what defiles a man early on. And then in this section, later on, it's very clear that it's a heart. But that first verse, I don't know what they were thinking, but they may have been confused about that fact. But that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about your, your gastrointestinal tract at all. He's talking about your heart, right? Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> you got to be careful. You got to have a strong stomach in my lectures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 
That's right. She brings up a good point, and uh, that word eliminated, where are you? It's in verse uh, 15? 19. Yeah, yes. Thank you. In verse 19, uh, there's, a, it, there's not a word for eliminated. It's that whole phrase, which does imply it could be like you know, the privy kind of thing. It has, it has similar meaning back then. But I think the, it's clear that the whole content is it's the coming out of the heart through the mouth. That this is what's defiling the man. Right. That's right. So he includes not just their traditions, but even the Old Testament law. He said, that's not what defiles you is the way you prepare your food, the way you ceremonially wash yourself. And that was a mark for the Jewish people. Right? Practically, what separated them from everyone else were three main things we talked about last week. One was the way they dealt with food and the way they prepared the food, the way they purified food, the way they washed. And so that it separated them from other people practically. Right? The other thing was the way they kept the Sabbath. That was unique to the Jewish people. And the third was, what was it? You got them all last week. Uh, <laughs> there were th- the what? Circumcision. Circumcision. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So there were really three rituals which they did, which clearly to everybody could see they're different people. Circumcision, Sabbath, and the way they managed food. Yes. Yes, so she's bringing this point out, and I think probably all your Bibles have that in parentheses. Thus he declared all foods clean. So that's unique to Mark's account of this. Matthew's account doesn't have that phrase. The thought is, okay, it's okay, getting ahead of me, but we'll just go there, that uh, this um, brings in what Peter learned in Acts chapter 10. Right? When, remember, we read that last week where he sees the sheet, he's up on the roof praying, and then Cornelius is in wherever Cornelius was, and Peter's in Joppa. Cornelius is in um, Caesarea, thank you, yeah. And the Lord speaks to Cornelius and says, you know, send someone to get Peter. He's in Joppa, he's up praying, and go get him. And as he's, Peter's praying, he sees this vision of the sheet and the animals, and the Lord says, take and eat. And Peter says, I can't do that. It's also interesting, even though here Peter was taught. All foods are unclean, or are clean. Even then, he didn't obviously get it. So I don't remember how many years later that would have been. I'd have to look. But five, eight, ten years later, he still doesn't understand. He may have been ceremonially doing stuff with the food even then. So he didn't get it until Acts 10 that food is okay. It's okay to eat deer and elk and, you know, the hooves, all that stuff. So he was taught that in Acts 10. So the thought of the commentators is, well, when Mark wrote this, Mark was Peter's writer, basically. That he just put that in there because he had special insight from Peter about, man, remember, Jesus told me this and I forgot, and then in, back in Acts 10, this happened, so Peter, Mark just may have included that. It's a special edition right there. And if you read Acts chapter 10, too, clearly uh, the lesson there is it's not just food. This applies to the Gentiles, right? He uses that as an image to say, and the message is to the Gentiles too. It's very clear. This is to go out to all people. They're not dirty either. You can associate with the Gentiles. So he expanded that image and that message. Okay. Yes. So that. Right. So you're making the point, I think, that um, what you take in is really always going to be temporary. If it does have an effect, it's, it's going to be eliminated and it's going to be temporary. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's true. But what doesn't ever leave us, ever, is the, the heart. That is the wellspring of other things, which we'll get to in a minute. I want to hold back on that because it's so powerful when you read that. What really is right deep inside of us. Very good. Okay, so if we'll just direct our attention to verse 17. I want to pick up there when he says, 
um, he left the crowd, entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. So, again, here he's even more intimate with his disciples in a house. And they questioned him about the parable. Matthew's account says that they said a little more here. When they met in this house, the disciples said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? So, like, the rhetorical answer is, of course he knows. And that was sort of the intent, was to challenge them uh, severely about everything they are, their traditions, their interpretation of the law, and how they're trying to even destroy God on earth. So, yes, like, indeed, yeah, they were offended. Um, It was intentional. And then Matthew's account also says, Jesus answered them, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Okay, so this is my interlude about parables. So they asked, Peter says, explain this parable to us, this one verse line that you just stated. Please explain it to us. First point, they didn't understand it. We read it, and it seems pretty clear to us what that means, right? But they, because of their traditions, because of the whole orb of food and cleansing food and how that was ingrained into their brain, that this was necessary to do this, to be holy, it just didn't sink in. And Jesus often taught in parables, right? The first place we read about him teaching in parables is Matthew 13. It says he spoke many things in parables. And Matthew 13 is that chapter that has eight parables all in, in, in the one chapter. Uh, later on in Matthew 13, it says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is what's quoted, and I think it's Psalm 78. I'll open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus often taught in parables. About one-third of his teaching is in this form. Uh, There's about 50 parables in the New Testament. Parables means para, beside, and balos is to throw or cast, so it's to cast something aside. So it's a story you'll tell next to the words that teaches a truth, right? And while we're on it, just to refresh our memories about principles you should use when we're interpreting parables, first pay attention to the context. It's usually a special occasion, and you have to pay attention to the occasion because he's using that to teach us a truth. Understand the physical story throughout. So for this one, understand he, he launches into this from their criticism about food and hand-washing. All right, so that's the image he's going to use to teach a truth. We should note the story's natural meaning. Understand the main point in any parable. There's usually one main point you want to get out of it. Don't try to look at the details and make ten different points because you can get lost with the imagery and lost in your own mind. So usually one main point he's teaching, and that's what we should stick to. And don't try to assign meaning to every single detail of it. Pay most attention. Like some parables, he doesn't explain. Jesus will teach a parable, and he doesn't explain what it means. But when he does explain it, that is one we should really pay attention to. And Jesus' explanation is what it means. So don't try to undermine that, obviously. And the other last point about parables is to always avoid importing a theological system we might have into a parable. It is just a parable. I say just. It's, it's a parable. It's going to be one lesson. You can't use it to import a, a overarching theological system. Often it will resonate with that, but be careful that you don't build your theology on parables. Okay. So the question is, we went through this before, but I'll ask it again. Why does Jesus teach in parables? And the answer is going to be in Mark chapter 4. You don't have to flip there because I'll just read it for you. But Mark chapter 4, when he went through this, we learned why Jesus teaches in parables. Verse 9 of chapter 4, and he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So who has ears to hear? His people have ears to hear. His chosen people have ears that can hear. So let them hear. Um, As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about parables. He was saying, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So the same people, people who have ears to hear, They have been given the mystery of God's kingdom. God graciously did that to his people. He he gave them ears to hear and allows them to understand the mystery. 
But those who are outside get everything in parables. Those are the people who don't believe. They're outside. They're going to get things in parables so that while seeing, they may not perceive. So this is a hard teaching, but it's God's word. So those who are outside, while seeing, they may not see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may not hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So the, the reason for parables is, number one, to teach believers a truth. Believers have ears and eyes, and we can understand the mystery, and he's going to teach us that truth. And number two is it hides the truth from unbelievers. So it's a form of judgment on them. It is a form of their judgment because they're hearing a parable and they're never going to understand it. So it's a blessing to the believer, and it's a judgment on people who are not believing. Okay, let's get back to Mark chapter 7. We're on verse 18. He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? So, they ask him, explain it to us. He says, are you so lacking in understanding also? This is a mild rebuke, right? Why don't you understand? You've been with me so long, it should be clear to you. But they don't. So, the point for us here is, and you see this over and over again. You'll see it again in Mark chapter 8. Okay, when we get there, it's really dramatic. So he's done all these miracles, fed 5,000, walked on the sea. Uh, they worship him. Their hearts are still hardened, though. He then teaches them all these different parables. Then he feeds 4,000 more, right? And then immediately after that, they're in another boat, and they're hungry. And they say, where are we going to get bread? And that's what they say to him. I mean, immediately after all this, and that's when Jesus says, I'll read it for you, Mark chapter 8, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces you picked up? They said 12. I mean, I can just see it, right? Like, you know, their heads are down 12. Yeah. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large, bas- large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So um, the point is, it's not just, okay, so the Pharisees don't get it. The unbelievers don't understand the parables. The apostles don't understand them. They're as bad, really, as the common people in their understanding. When you read Mark, they are as dense as the unbelievers is ironic, right? Because you think, well, they're gods. They should understand it. They've been taught for so many years. Why then do they not see it? No, let's put it this way. How do they see the truth in Jesus' parables? He explains it. So just think of that for a minute. So they're still earthly. They're still human. They have all these lessons. The only way when Jesus was on earth that they really understood the parables was when Jesus himself explained it to them. So that's their blessing, right? It is a blessing to his people that he stays with them, even though they're not very clever. They don't understand these spiritual insights, but he is there explaining it to them. To me, the analogy we can expand, this is safe to do because other scriptures support it. The analogy is, how do we understand God's truth? The Holy Spirit, who is really Jesus, right? We understand the Trinity, this three-in-one. It's a mystery. It's hard, but... The only way that, the, that we understand anything about God's word or his truth is, you could say it this way, Jesus is explaining it to us through the Holy Spirit that's in our new heart, right? So we have to remember that, lest we become proud or haughty or anything. The only way we understand that, that God's truth, is because God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit teaches it to us. I think of is it it's 2 Corinthians which says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. He cannot. It's only his people that can understand it because the Holy Spirit. Exactly, yes. Yep. That really puts the high priestly prayer into context, so even from here. I just thought, naturally they would be nervous. 
It's like, we can't understand any of this unless you explain it to us. So what are we going to do when you leave? He said, don't worry. I will send a helper to be with you, and I'll, I will explain it to you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You're talking about the road to Emmaus. Yeah. Well, that's a great story, the road to Emmaus. And, and, and he says, oh, aren't our hearts burning within us when you were here? Is that what you're referring to? No, after that. Uh, yeah. Um, let's go there because I know it's, really, it's a really nice verse. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'll back up to verse 44. And now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, this, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And then he explains what's going to happen. Yeah, very good. So the only reason they're able to gain insight is because Jesus teaches them. They are helpless without Christ, completely helpless, not just in learning things, but in all other ways. We're helpless too. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Another or amplification, really, I think, of that truth. We are helpless, and he died for us. We're ungodly, we don't deserve it, and he died. Okay, the rest of... Uh, Verse 18 says, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated? We've, we've sort of covered what that means, but the heart is a word that describes our inner person. It's not the heart organ. It's not this physical thing that beats every second. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the inner man. The synonym for the, in the New Testament would be the inner person, our it's our seed of emotion. It's our, our, our mind is involved in it. It's, it's more than our mind. It's not just the intellect. It's, it's, it's just who we are, our inner, inner person. It's the seed of our emotion, of our spirit, of our intellectual person. It really comes from this. So it's who you really are, not your fingers and your eyes and your ears and your physical heart. It's something immaterial that makes you who you are. That's your heart. And... It is not affected by something physical. Vines, the, uh, the dictionary, Vines Dictionary, uh, he's got a good definition. It says, the chief organ of physical life occupies the most important place in the human system. So he's saying the physical heart is really important. And he even goes on to say about how, think of this, how the heart pumps all your blood, right? So it starts here and it just sends the life, which is in the blood, right, everywhere in your body. So it's a great image to think of the heart immaterially is a seed of life, your, your true life. Okay, so Vine says it's the chief physical organ. By easy transition, the word came to stand for man's e entire mental and moral activity, both the rational and the emotional elements. In other words, the heart is used figuratively for the hidden springs of the personal life. Okay, so <laughs> what comes from the hidden springs of our personal life? Okay, don't say. We'll get to it in a minute. Uh, but that's a, that's a teaser. What, what, can com what comes from man's hidden, deep recesses of our life? There's a lot, a lot of verses for it. Right, and we'll get to it. In a what is Proverbs 4.23? Well, yeah, that's a great one. What does Jeremiah 17.9 say? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Right. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Yes. Guard your heart. Right. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know, I'll just read a few of these verses. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. So if, you're, if your person is pure, which would have to be someone pure by God, you're blessed. You'll see God. And, you know, Matthew... Five, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount, he points out, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So it's the heart that's the most important thing. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 9, he says, Jesus knew their thoughts. He said, why are you thinking evil, thinking evil in your hearts? Okay. Verse 20 of Mark 7 says, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. 
from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. This type of list is several places in the Bible. You can read it in Matthew. You can read about it in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about how evil man really is. Galatians chapter 5 has a similar list. It's not going to be my point today to, to go through each thing in detail. We get the idea, right? We get the idea of how the heart of man is, is really debauched. It's not concerned with the things of God. Um, that word sensuality is a really interesting one about sort of this wantonness, this type of person who is so bad, they don't care about what public people think. They don't care about what anyone thinks. They're just wicked, evil. They have no restraint at all. Unrestrained licentiousness was one synonym I found. Blaspheme God, have harsh speech. We're haughty, disdain. We think we're above everybody else, etc. Morally senseless, lack of ethical perception. So that's what comes from the heart of man. All these things, verse 23 says, proceed from within and defile the man. So, obviously, Jesus is teaching something that is shock to the Pharisees. That this, they, this is a shock. They think, no, I'm clean. I've washed my hands a certain way. I am clean. And he says, no, this is how bad you really are. This is how bad all people are. All evil things can proceed within and defile the man. So, how does that fit with phrases like this? Well, people are basically good. Well, what about Johnny? Well, Johnny's a good boy. He just got caught up in the wrong crowd, right? I mean, how many times have you heard that? So often. How many, what other phrases do you think of that, that say things like, well, um, I just knew in my heart it was the right thing to do. That's a phrase that I think we should be careful of because you, Christians should say, well, I thought it was the right thing, and I, I studied the word, and I talked to other believers, and then I came to a solution. When people say repeatedly, I just knew in my heart it was the right thing to do, well, your heart is actually um, this, and be careful that you're listening to your heart, because it may not be God. It may be something that's just debauched and wrong and, and not God's will. Follow your heart. Another one. Thank you. All right. So many of us... <laughs> So even if we don't, we in this room would, would say intellectually, well, that's not right, but it may be that a lot of times in our, during our day we, we make decisions like that or treat people, you just have this reflexive thought. So I think the point for us is, and this is going to go back a little bit to what Spurgeon said, you know, this culture of self. Always be aware that that is what we have to nurture and protect and hold. And uh, when you have feelings and emotions and thoughts about it's coming from my heart, we should just hold it in check. It's okay to hold that sort of stuff in check and uh, compare it to God's Word. Because that, this, this is where the truth is, and this will help us understand how we're to interact and how we're even to think. And it'll help us repent of these things which are actually, do they ever go away? Just read Romans 7. It, it does not ever go away. It's always there with us, this evil heart, even though we're saved. So the opposite of what the Pharisees were thinking is actually true. Uh, we are not good people. We're not good people. We just have to admit it. Like you're putting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true, right? I mean, just be honest. When you think through a problem or think through something, we think our version is the right one. And other people's is not right. So we got to be humble and, and always recognize within us is evil. Um, James 4. I mean, read some of these, and I'm going to really just hammer this home. James 4. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is it? Is it not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members? So the same idea here. It's from you. We are the source of quarrels and conflicts. When he talks to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 again, woe to you. This is, the, by the way, the same chapter. It's woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, over and over again to the scribes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. What a great image for what we're learning. On the outside, they're white. On the inside, they're dead, corpse. 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Romans 3, there's none righteous. Not one single person is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 1, we read about all that list. And it, before he starts that, in Romans 1, 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then you could read that list in the rest of uh, Romans chapter 1. Acts 7, you men who are stiff-necked, and here's another great word that is used, uncircumcised in heart, in ears. That's a great image. It's, you're uncircumcised. You haven't been cleaned. You haven't been circumcised. You haven't been made gods. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. So this is a, a uh, characteristic of people who are not saved. They're always resisting the Holy Spirit, doing just as your fathers did. We've already read about how we can have hard hearts. Jesus was grieved at the hard hearts of the Pharisees earlier on in Mark, and then also we read about that in chapter 6 with the apostles. Um, so we get the point. Are, are we humans able to do good on of ourselves? We can't. Can we keep the Ten Commandments even? No. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments and just read the Beatitudes, right? If you think wickedly, you, you committed murder. So we can't even keep the basic Ten Commandments. When they ask Jesus, um, okay, just tell us, what's the greatest commandment? You know, so like, make it simpler for us. What's the greatest commandment we can just do? And uh, Jesus answers it once, and I think one of the teachers answers it and says, well, um, the Lord your God is one. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. It's kind of like they would say, okay, I can do that. But the point is, you cannot even do that even close. You can't even keep the greatest commandment. So when you ask all those questions, can we keep the Ten Commandments? No. Can we keep the simple commandment? No. Can we do good? No. We can't do anything. Because men love darkness, not light. Jesus is light, came into the earth, and the men love the darkness and didn't turn to the light. We reject it. We love the approval of men more than we love God. So, all this to say, this, right, is why we need a new heart. We're going to end on a positive note here. This is why we need a new heart, because our heart is very diseased and awful. We, needed, we need a heart that's been circumcised, right? Uh, we can only love God, we can only serve Him with a heart that's clean, that's been redeemed, that's been washed, it's regenerate, and it's uncircumcised. And then where do we get that? Paul actually came to this. Remember in Romans 7? Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this curse? Anyone know the answer? Christ Jesus saves us from this. Right? We're so evil. He'll save us from it. David cries out at the end of Psalm 51, well, in the middle of Psalm 51, where he, you know, Psalm 51 is his repentance psalm after Bathsheba, He's truly, thoroughly, utterly repentant. He is sick. He's wasting away. He's miserable. And then uh, Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So that should be our cry, too. So I'm going to end by reading us some really encouraging verses and promises of God, all right? Ezekiel 36. This is when the prophet promises to Israel. Then... I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, I will do this, he's saying. I will cleanse you. I will um, I'll, I'll cleanse you. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances." Uh, Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we had this evil, nasty, rotten heart we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, believe deep down that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With a heart, the person believes, resulting in righteousness with the mouth he confesses. 2 Corinthians verse 4, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light will shine out of darkness, is the one who shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be of God and not from ourselves. And God knows our hearts. God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 15. Cleansing their hearts by faith, he says. So the point of this parable is... Uh, your heart is evil. And he doesn't really tell them about the clean heart that they can give here, but we know the end of that story. And it is healthy, I think, for Christians, for us to recognize that even though we're saved, we still have this, this inner person of us that is prone to wickedness. It is prone to go astray. It's prone to be angry. It's prone to be selfish, all that. i got to tell you a story from yesterday real quick. And this is an example I want to use because I think uh, it might resonate with you. So I like to ride my bike on Saturday mornings. And I was out riding and this nice trail. It was beautiful. The fog was lifting, a perfect temperature. It was just a great, perfect Saturday morning. I was so happy to be out there. And I was just like, really, I had studied for this lesson. And I, my mind was just, I was in it, right? I was just feeling happy. And I was praying. And it was just a wonderful morning. And on the trail ahead, was two people walking with their dog. And they were having a great time. They were a little bit overweight, and I, and I was thinking, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But, but, it, was, but it was great that they were out getting exercise, and I could tell that they were, they were working, and they had their dog, and they were having a great time, and they were talking, and they were having just a wonderful time. And my instant thought, I was angry. Because so I was like, when I ride my bike, I like to go in a straight line, you know, and just work out. And, and I thought, don't they see how they're taking up the whole road? Don't they see how they should be off to the right and, and give me a path? And they don't hear me coming. And I'm going to have to say something to them. And I have to, like, interrupt my whole thing. I don't have a bell. I had to talk to them, actually. I had to say, yeah, behind you. So, but my point being, and after the whole scene, I was like, you know, I really was angry about that. Why could I be angry in that situation? I mean, it was like the perfect setup for me, even to see people out enjoying this great Saturday morning. So, where did that come from? Uh, yeah, right. Something didn't happen the way I wanted. I had my own idea, but it came from here. Some, some kind of... Anyway, so that I think those little things are an opportunity for us constantly to check ourselves and, and recognize where that comes from and repent and always be here because that's going to help us to stay on the straight and narrow. Any other thoughts? I didn't hit him. I, I, I said, hey, behind you. Okay, good. And I was, I was fine after that, but just the point is, right, that reflex is it's always there with you, and, and uh, we have to be guard against it. Yeah, praise God. That, right. No, I didn't repent. I didn't confess. No, I didn't think that was. Yeah, that's right. But that might interrupt my, you know, my pace. <laughs> Any other thoughts? All right. Well, thank you. We'll see you guys next week.